I'm George Hirsch. And I'm Alex Getzfried. In today's episode of George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio, we'll be exploring our creative sides, whether it's making art, making food, or making ourselves feel healthy and well. We'll sit down with a chef who has run some of the top kitchens in New York City and Long Island, and appeared numerous times on the Food Network and PBS for his creative, down-to-earth manner both in and out of the kitchen. I know my type of personality. It's just got, I gotta keep, keep moving and keep going and you know doing new things and trying new things. But first, a wise artist once said, we don't make mistakes, just happy little accidents, and inspired multiple generations to pick up a brush and make their own creations. Bob Ross taught us the joy of painting from a PBS studio in Muncie, Indiana, and now you can experience that magic in person, thanks in part to Jessica Jenkins, curator of the Bob Ross Experience at the Minatrista Museum. It's time to come together on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio. X marks the spot. Not a pirate's booty, but yet a treasure on its own. The spot is where the beloved master Bob Ross stood painting the iconic PBS Joy of Painting TV series. The center stage television studio where Ross did his thing for 31 seasons and encouraging his viewers, you need the dark in order to show the light. And my favorite, we don't make mistakes. We just have happy accidents. Visitors to the Bob Ross Experience, located at the former PBS WIPB TV studios at the Minatrista Museum in Muncie, Indiana, can pose for a picture, and some even tear up. Why? Because a powerful time in American art history took place here. Joining us is Jessica Jenkins, Vice President of Collections and Storytelling at Minatrista, a museum and gardens in Muncie, Indiana. In her role, she directs and leads activities related to historic resources, including the acquisition, use, and management of the museum's collection, archives, and historic structures. Additionally, she oversees the museum's research and storytelling efforts, including the development and creation of exhibits on their 40-acre campus. She's the recipient of the Quincy University History Department Owen J. Blum OFM Award for Scholarly Achievement in History. She had authored numerous publications on topics ranging from women's suffrage to World War I poster art. In April 2020, Roman and Littlefield Press released her most recent book, Exploring Women's Suffrage Through 50 Historic Treasures. Most recently, she served as the creator for the museum's recently opened exhibition, The Bob Ross Experience. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, George. Thank you for having me. First, I need to know all about the museum. It sounds absolutely fantastic. 40 acres? Is that true? Yes, yes, we are 40 acres. So Minatrista is the home of the ball jar and also a little bit the home of Bob Ross. We are 40 acres. We have kind of a main museum building with galleries where we explore art, history, nature. We also have a historic boulevard where the Ball family who made ball canning jars had their homes. And in one of those houses, you know, that house leader and served as WIPB's television studio, kind of a very unconventional TV studio in the 1970s and 80s, but there it was. Are there still any of those ball jars around? Yes, lots of them. You can find them everywhere. And we have several, several, several thousand in our museum collection. How did it make the transition then from the home, the private home of one of the ball member families then to a uh, PBS studio? Yeah, it's actually a little bit more straightforward than you would think. 
So really what happened was is Ed Ball, who was one of those members of the family, he was the president of um, Ball Corp at one point. He was also highly active in setting up PBS for our nation. So he was involved at the national level of getting that set up. He was involved um, when the Nixon administration was actually trying to put a little bit of a damper on PBS. Ed was highly active. So that also translated to our local community. And he was very active in getting a local PBS station set up. So when they got one set up and ready to go, the new station needed needed a home <laughs> in a sense for its studios and ed knew just the place uh, a home in fact of his aunt and uncle that was just down the street from where he grew up was being used um as a rental at that point the the family that had lived in the house for many decades right um had either passed on or the kids had moved out and so it was being used as a rental and ed was like you know what i know a really great place that where we can find space for a tv studio and that's how it happened Wow. Now, the uh, studio is no longer there, of course. I don't see them filming Masterpiece behind you or anything. So, no, uh, no, no, no. <laughs> actually, they, no. And in the late 80s, WIPB actually moved to a very modern, high-tech studio space on Ball State University's campus. And they continue there today. They are a very active station, still servicing our local community and our local area. Well, I know the uh, Bob Ross experience, which you have led in the curation and the overseeing of it, is is kind of like a national sensation right now. Um, all across the country, people have been writing about it and talking about it and chatting about it. How did this come about? Yeah, one of the things that we, we really focus on at Minatrista is telling really good community stories from our collection. And as an institution, one of the things that as a museum we're looking to do is really help people in our region take pride in where they live, in this area that they call home. And one of those stories in our collection was, lo and behold, that Bob Ross filmed The Joy of Painting on our historic site in one of our historic structures. And we had actually had a relationship with Bob back you know, in the early 90s, we exhibited his work at our museum then. So, you know, looking for those good stories, this was just a natural one to tell. It's one that the community of Muncie definitely embraces because Bob was part of town. He was around. They knew him. They loved him. And he's just a story that a lot of people can connect with, especially with, you know, those those warm feels and that sense of positivity right. and empowerment that he really put out to his viewers. Is there something in your research before you launched the experience that really stuck out that was kind of unknown about Bob? Well, that's that's a really great thing. And I would say that some of it are kind of the things that make him make him a person and make him just like everyone else. Some of the things that I loved most finding out was actually talking to the crew that worked on The Joy of Painting and talking to his friends here in the community and finding out that Bob really loved Waffle House. That's where he loved to go eat. He really <laughs> loved QL's Barbecue, which was a local barbecue joint for many, many years in Muncie. And he, he loved that place. He loved iced tea. You know, he, he liked going and feeding the birds. And it's those kinds of things that, you know, I think really were the most joyful to find out about him. You know, he, he really was a person and he really was likable. Like he appeared on TV. He was just a good guy, you know, living his life. How did it feel uh, amongst the uh, the crew that worked on his production to know that you were putting together this this exhibit? 
the the crew was immensely supportive of us. They really allowed us to make the experience that we've pulled together. In many ways, you know, we're telling this story in the house of this, what became a cultural phenomenon. And the best way we felt to do that was to talk to the people who were there. So they were very generous of their time and their memories and really just sat with us and let us hear their memories and their thoughts and share their stories. And so those are the things that we were able then to put into the exhibit. So they were just generously supportive and we cannot say thank you to them enough. Jessica, what are some of the interactive features of the Bob Ross experience? Not a lot of museums have interactive stuff. So that that's interesting to me. And, and, and it's very interactive. Um, we really wanted people to feel like they were in the space and could really explore. So this is what I would really call an immersive space. So we didn't want to put up a velvet rope and keep you far away from Bob's easel. Um, any of the original artifacts are secure. They are safe. We worked with our exhibit design firm to find really creative ways to do that, but to allow the visitor to get up close. So while they're in the space, they can walk over to, for instance, a, um, a coat rack that has what looks like extra shirts on it. And they're not Bob's personal shirts, but they are size large John Henry brand that he always wore in every episode. <laughs> John Henry brand from JCPenney. And when you pick that up and you open it up, you might find, for instance, a little label in there that gives you a little tidbit, a little bit of information. You might go over and pick up a cue card off of one of the bookcases and flip that over and find a little story there. You might look up on the ceiling and realize there's, you know, a little story to be told up by the lights. So things like that, you know, you pick up a scrapbook, you pick up anything and just start looking and you're going to find the information and the stories really embedded there is a way of telling them rather than through traditional labels. You know, we really want people to get into that space and explore. And it's a fun way to tell the stories, not only through words, but to also show Oh, well, here's a tube of paint, a physical tube of paint that tells you a little bit of a story, but it's also laying here and it being in the studio tells you what what it looks like outside of that camera's view. So there's there's a lot to explore. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of space, uh, it's it's a very humble space. It was a very simple studio. Is, is that correct? Oh, absolutely. There's not a lot of bells and whistles. You know, WIPB certainly has a wonderful setup now, but in their earlier days, it was very basic. I mean, this is in the first floor of an, you know, 19th century home. So they're very small rooms. His setup for his show was a simple black curtain that was just on, you know, um, a set of rings that you would pull back when Bob was in town. He'd set up his easel in front of it. So you're pretty much in an old living room with a couple of cameras set up. A lot of bodies, you know, in there that needed to be in. And it was really basic and simple. But, you know, for the joy of painting, that kind of worked out perfectly because Bob didn't want a lot of fuss. He wanted people to be able to focus on that canvas, focus on what he was doing. And, you know, it's just such a quiet show where you can really hear Bob's soothing voice and you can hear the brush strokes and the movement of the palette knife. And it, it really worked out quite perfectly and poetically. 
Well, not only the space was simple, but the actual process of the show, I believe, was pretty simple, right? I don't think there was much editing. And I think those could you talk a little bit about the technique? Because that technique to make those paintings in real time is actually a little more difficult than it seems. Yeah, yeah. So I'll answer the kind of that in two parts. The process for the show, yes, also very simple. Keep it simple. Keep it clean. There was not a lot of editing. It didn't happen a lot. Pretty much the opens and closes for the show would be filmed. And then for every episode, he would literally just film live to tape, start to finish in 27-ish minutes for each one of those paintings. And you mentioned that, you know, technique. He used a technique known as wet on wet. And it's been around with you know, the art world for centuries at this point. And it's this really wonderful technique that allows the artist to put paint onto canvas really quickly and get a lot of work done. And while that is true, at the same time, Bob was really racing through it <laughs> for his TV <laughs> shows. I mean, sometimes I'd still watch the episode and I'm like, oh, that is really, really quick. But he always got it done. But it's kind of a way of having a slick canvas and He could put up what he was doing and move it around quickly and get it done. And luckily for him, he he was a bit of a taskmaster and he trained himself very well so that he could get those paintings done on time. And he almost always did it. Very rarely did he not miss the mark and have to refilm an episode. Now, uh, as far as being disciplined, uh, I believe he also had a career in the military before starting art. He did. He served in the Air Force. He was a veteran. He, you know, he served in the Air Force for many, many years. And he often said later on that, you know, that military training served him very well in his TV career. It, you know, really allowed him to understand how to very much regiment himself, which is probably why he could stay looking so calm and relaxed, even though knowing that, you know, it's kind of on a speed clock and you have people giving him countdowns and holding up cue cards. Have you got 10 minutes left, Bob? But he was as cool as a cucumber on on camera. And I think that, you know, that that military life really served him well then in his later art career and his education career, teaching others how to paint. He really, you know, put those skills to work. Now, I think a good message also from his iconic success is that he always stuck with it. And I believe he he believed in himself when uh, some of the art world wasn't taking him seriously. But in the launch of his uh, public relation, uh, public uh, television series, I can relate to that. Because when you go to launch, it's about the number of stations that come on board. And I think they had to reach a certain benchmark. I think it was like maybe 25 and they got 30 the first year. Mm-hmm. Then it doubled and then it doubled again. And of course, look where he is now. So I think that's a good message to uh, to people to know about Bob, that if you sometimes have to stick with something. Oh, absolutely. And that's something that he very much spoke to his students about. And I always like to call them students because I think Bob really thought of himself as an educator first and foremost. And he was teaching others how to paint and really instilling in them this idea that you're getting at of don't give up. It comes with that, you know, there's there's no mistakes, just happy accidents. Don't give up. Keep trying. And he really wanted people to feel empowered in their own abilities and to realize that, no, no, you can do this because ultimately you can just keep trying and you can succeed, whether that's in painting 
or cooking or just trying out something new that you haven't tried before. Don't, you know, don't have fear. Just go into it very fearless and just try out that new creative thing. As far as his artwork itself, how much of it is uh, exhibited or displayed at the museum? Yeah, so we have 26 paintings that were painted by Bob that are in our collection. Mm -hmm. Um, There are six paintings at any one time on the first floor of the experience. There are always six there and they do rotate so that, you know, our visitors that can that come in can see new paintings. Also, we are getting ready to open up a small gallery space up on the second floor of the house that we've been getting in shape over the last year and working on. And that will also be able to hold um, several paintings at any one time. So when visitors come to see us, one of the things we really wanna give them access to is seeing Bob's, Bob's work that he did because it is so inspiring and people just really have this sense of awe when they see it. So you get, you get a good handful of them. Um, anyone who comes, once we get that little art gallery installed here in a couple months, when you come in, you'll get to see about 20 paintings at any one given time in the house. And then, you know, we will rotate those through to keep things fresh for our visitors and to also, you know, keep those paintings, you know, happy and safe. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's about five times the amount of paintings you can find at the Smithsonian because his paintings were just, uh, put on exhibit in the Smithsonian. Now, I know that the I know the paintings are very iconic and recognizable and the studio and all that. But there's one aspect of Bob Ross that I think is really recognizable that we haven't touched on and it's the hair. Are you going to be offering perms to people as part of the interactive exhibit? Because <laughs> I know, you know, it's kind of like ball jars. It, Bob Ross and ball jars have both come back at the same time. I see a lot of Bob Rosses around Halloween time, and it's always that hair that you can tell. Mm, perms. That's something something to keep in mind. I don't know. We haven't gone there yet, but that's an interesting idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess maybe the starving artist in him in the early days, it was out of necessity because he didn't have to get his hair done as much. <laughs> but then when he wanted to change it later, I believe, he wouldn't, couldn't change it because he was an icon. iconic. Yeah, an icon, yeah you know, correct, correct. It started out as a really simple thing for him trying to save a little bit of money. And, you know, lo and behold, he got really recognizable with that haircut. So he, he got to keep it. It's fun. If you watch the seasons, you'll see it kind of shrink and get a little bigger as he got a haircut <laughs> every time. But always same, you know, basic, basic silhouette. Bob kept it. <laughs> Well, we're so glad that you have done this. And Jessica, I want to thank you um, for sharing one of our legends in, in American history. That was Jessica Jenkins, Vice President of Collections and Storytelling at Ministra Museum at the Bob Ross Experience. For more information on the Bob Ross Experience, visit ministra.net slash Bob Ross Experience. Art is a very personal and individualistic experience. Likewise, when you talk of Bob Ross, he means something different to everyone. When I see his art, I like to feel there's a part of Bob in me, using my time to empower others to experience the joy of life. If I can do it, you can do it. I'm George Hirsch with today's Good to Know. Smoking has been used as a way of preserving and flavoring food for thousands of years. And it is still very popular due to the flavor it infuses into the food. And when eaten in moderation, it can be good for you, especially smoked oily fish such as salmon. According to Norway's National Institute of Nutrition and Seafood, the composition of omega-3 fatty acids, calculated as a percentage of the total fats, 
does not change during the smoking process. Further studies showed omega-3 levels equal or comparable to those in fresh salmon. Today's smoking food at home is gaining in popularity due to a wide assortment of cooking equipment using added technology. However, I'm still a big fan of old school hot smoking on a wooden plank that originated from Native Americans in the Pacific Northwest. My spice rub and cedar plank smoked salmon is a winner every time. And that's good to know. Recently, Alex and I were in the kitchen, creating some exciting dishes and having fun with food. Exercise is always the best way to unstress and get a boost of endorphins. But sometimes life gets a little stressful and we all want to do is find an escape to relax. Before you dip into that bag of cookies and chips, consider this. A diet rich in whole grains, vegetables, and fruits is a healthier option than eating many simple carbohydrates found in unprocessed foods. When you eat is also essential. Don't skip meals. Doing so may result in blood sugar that causes you to feel jittery, leading to underlying anxiety. Hey, Alex. Hey, George. How are you? Good. Alex, did you know if you need an immediate calming effect, you should reach out for a glass of warm milk? Is that true? Is that why they used to give kids warm milk before bed? Yeah, warm milk. And it's not necessarily good to reach out for a glass of warm milk and a plate of cookies. Well, yeah, you don't want that sugar spike right before you go no, to sleep. No, but it's actually known because of the tryptophan in the milk that helps the serotonin product, which is about 43%, induce that feeling of pleasure and relaxation, which helps you fall asleep. Well, 95% of serotonin receptors are found in the lining of your stomach, so it makes sense that if you eat something that gives you that calming effect, that it goes right to your gut first. Yeah, eat something, but it shouldn't be something, you know, like high in protein. Like it wouldn't be good to have a good uh, porta house before you go to bed. That would no, really keep you awake you because that will take you anywhere from um, 36 to 48 hours to digest yeah. that one. With that, what do you think are some other good recommendations? Well, I know that 18% of the population struggles with depression and anxiety, but only about one-third of those people actually seek treatment. Now, obviously, we're not doctors, and there are definitely people who need prescription medications or some other type of medical help. But for a lot of those people, something that could help them out is eating a balanced diet, staying hydrated, avoiding or cutting back alcohol and caffeine— uh, those are all tried and true methods to calm you down and for improved mental health. But I think that some of the foods, at least raw foods that I've, I've been reading about that help with mental health are carrots, bananas, apples, dark leafy greens like spinach and kale, grapefruit, lettuce, all different types of citrus fruits, fresh berries, cucumbers, kiwis. Those are just... Those are just like the tip of the iceberg for foods that can improve how you feel on a daily basis. Yeah. Fruits, vegetables, grains, and nuts are ideally um, some of the top foods. Uh, seafood, fish, especially salmon. Yeah. High in omega-3s. Is is excellent. It is is probably one of the best things that you could consume. Cod, anchovies, and oysters fall into that group too. Um, it is known to help decrease anxiety. And if you're able to 
eat that on a regular basis, it is it is going to have multiple benefit effects even beyond uh, anxiety, of course, you yeah. know, from heart disease and and other issues. Now, you know, Alex, you know, many years ago with myself um, being on the road, filming multiple series, multiple cookbooks, publicity tours, it's very easy to get push and pulled and not be able to be on a on a good schedule. Yeah, your your food timing is off, but you're also eating a lot of takeout. And you're eating you're eating, you know, even though I'd be eating in good places, you might even be eating the right time of day yeah. and digestion slows down. So it's it's only natural you put on you put on the weight. And between um these two series when I was on a, a, a extensive national tour, I was on for 280 days one year on the road. That's a lot. That's a lot. And a lot of those are one-night stands. Yeah. You know, you're in and out of, of, of the cities. So I put the weight on. I gained I gained 45 pounds. Well, even when we used to travel, uh, my buddy Mick and I would do a lot of trips down to South America, Central America, uh, Southern Africa. And one thing we used to always say is for two reasons, the best way to visit a place is if you can go there for more than 14 days. Because really, whenever you go somewhere and you're traveling a lot like you were, the first seven to eight days is just spent figuring it out, figuring out where to eat, what places you like to eat, uh, what the schedule of eating is like where you are, and then just getting comfortable and acclimated. And then that gives you another week to live a normal life while you're there and feel good and, and, and have energy. So when you're in and out of a city in a night, you're not learning that stuff. If you pick the wrong place and get a bad meal, it's not like the next day you can say, oh, well, we won't go back there. You're, you're in a new city again. And when you're traveling and touring, that's that's an excellent um, recommendation to follow. In my case, I didn't have that luxury. Yeah, I was already being scheduled. It was mostly business and publicity related, either to books, the TV series, sponsors, uh, appearances. So what was I to do? There was a certain time I had to say stop and take my life back into my own hands. And that became a very regimental schedule. I was actually eating more foods and feeling more full all throughout the day because I went from eating maybe a little bit here, a little bit there, and then one big meal because that was the only time I could eat was at the end of the day before I went to sleep to eating five, six meals during a day. Yeah. My friend Sam is a registered dietitian, and you know that I oftentimes suffer from anxiety and depression issues. And I notice that a lot of times they really creep up when my diet gets bad and I don't exercise. And one thing that I never realized was she gave me uh, a sheet for me personalized to count my macros, which was just fat, carbs, and protein intake. What times a day I was eating it and making sure that I hit the numbers. And like you're saying, my portion size per meal actually went down because when I did eat, I was overeating. But I ate more meals throughout the day spread out, and I noticed that my blood sugar levels really leveled out. But calorically, I was eating a lot more food each day. But my mental health really improved from it. And my physical, too. I mean, just weird things like joint aches, uh, body aches, recovering from workouts. All of it improved. And I know that there's a lot of diets out there and a lot of people are no-carb people and things like that. But for me, trying to cut carbs out just messed my brain up. And following the macros really worked. So one thing that I realized was that complex carbs 
are broken down more slowly by your body. So because that process takes longer, your blood sugar levels actually stay more even throughout the digestive process through the day. So it's not even about eating the right amount of carbs per day, but the right type of carb. And the other thing too is like what is going to give you the best bang for your buck is something that I always found important when you're trying to eat these right levels, right? So let's say that you're trying to hit, like for me, I think it was around 240 grams of carbs a day is what I needed to take in. If I had a small handful of pasta, it was like half my day's carbs done. And I would just eat that and still be starving and be miserable. And I'd get the blood sugar spike and then you're going to bed hungry. If you swap that out for something like quinoa or brown rice or sweet potatoes, I could eat like three sweet potatoes, be completely stuffed, but then feel really energetic and clean and good after. So picking picking what type of food you're eating to get what I always call the best bang for your metabo- metabolic buck, uh, you know, what's going to fill you up and keep you satiated longer? You know, you could snack all day on blueberries and strawberries and low glycemic carbs like that. And you can really eat a lot of them and still hit your numbers. Whereas if you have one or two cookies, you're going to eat more carbs than you need, more fat, and you're going to feel bad after. You know, there is a certain amount of discipline that has to take place in this process. If you are at work all day and you have a commute home and you have not had, you know, a substantial lunch and maybe a mid-afternoon snack, as soon as you get home, you're going to be depleted. Yeah. And you are going to dive in for that quick fix. Mm-hmm. It's it's just a natural uh, process. So sometimes it, it takes pre-paving. Meal you know, prepping. Thinking out your, your, your snack schedule, even yeah. for the day and for the week, whether it's, you know, apples and bananas and nuts, a little bit of, you know, a uh, trail mix, but something natural. Not, yeah, not I meal prep at my house up. a lot. You know, it doesn't have to be a certain day, but if there's a lower day, like yesterday, for example, I did all my food shopping yesterday and then I cooked like probably the next three to four days worth of meals. And then I know that Thursday is a little bit of a lighter day, so I can get another three to four days worth of meals done because – you know, even when we leave here after a day in the studio all afternoon, we're not eating or drinking really. You're just kind of banging out work. When I get home, I like to be able to just eat something healthy. Like right now in my fridge, I've got a few sweet potatoes. I've got a couple of cups of cooked off brown rice. I have some seared chicken thighs, some grilled chicken breast, uh, green beans done. You know, just things that you can do in batches that reheat easily and still taste good and that you want to eat. Because I think that's another thing. You know, there's always that old school bodybuilder mentality where you just eat your brown rice, your chicken breast, and your broccoli, and that's what you eat every single day, and it hits the levels. And people don't stick to that because it's not fun to eat, it doesn't taste good, and it's boring. So you can spice things up with actual spices and still eat healthy and still eat calming meals. A lot of spices themselves are calming. I mean, turmeric, ginger, these things have anti-inflammatory properties that are going to make you feel better and calmer. A chef's day can be challenging in many ways. In addition to all the demands, it requires the constant flow of creativity, thinking of fresh and exciting dishes that will help keep their guests engaged. With so much creative pressure, how do chefs stay inspired? I know for Alex and myself, it's always about grounding into the earth and water. If we write, we're creating. If he's on a nature's bird path, he's creating. If I'm in the garden, I'm creating. The natural creative juices flow right into the kitchen. Joining us today is executive chef of Honest Man Restaurants, the creator of numerous concepts and authentic menus, including Northern Italian, American pub style, Mexican, and barbecue. He has run top kitchens in New York City and in the Hamptons. Chef Joe is a graduate of the CIA, co-creator of the Hayground School's Young Chefs program, 
maintains a one-acre organic farm behind one of his restaurants, where he harvests items in season that go right from garden to plate. He maintains relationships with many of the local farmers and produce suppliers supporting East End Farms, again being one of the first to proudly display their names on his menus. He has been featured numerous times on PBS and Food Network for his creative, down-to-earth manner, in and out of the kitchen. I can go on and on, organizing soup kitchens, quietly making lunches for school children. Quietly, because that's who he is. Joe, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you here. One of the things I want to ask you is you've had a very unique and creative way when it comes to about creating your menus and concepts. You actually take it on the road. We do. Yeah. Whenever we have a new concept that's kind of new to me, you know, it's kind of important to kind of throw ourselves into, you know, the culture, whether it being Mexican food, you know, when we first opened La Fondita in 2001, in 2000, myself, Mark, and Jeff took a trip to Mexico and hit, you know, quite a few little places and really concentrated on street food and, you know, home cooking. Actually took a mole class back then. It was in Oaxaca. Oaxaca. Yeah, it was pretty incredible. Mark and Jeff dropped me off in the morning and came back, you know, like five o'clock at night after it was done. And a full day class. It was a full day class. You know, making mole is a full day. It's, it's a full serious. day. Thing. Yeah, yeah, we actually went to the market, picked out all the ingredients, and then went back, and everything was cooked over a fire. So it was a long process. I'm always skeptical of mole when I see it on a menu that isn't an authentic place, but. Anytime I'm at one of your places, you know it's the real deal because yeah. you did the research. Yeah, and not only that, you know, I like to surround myself with people that have the same passion that I do. So at you know, La Fondita it was it was Juan Geronimo. And when we opened up Coche, it was Juan Geronimo and Juan Juarez, my chef from the city. They're both from Mexico. So and Juan Juarez, who is now my current chef there, uh, he really, really took the moles on. You know, he's actually sourcing ingredients from his family in Mexico. They were shipping it us to, up to us because you can't get a lot of those chilies here. You yeah. can't get the real Mexican chocolate here. So what was so special about that class? And what, what did you learn? What did you find you know, different in when, preparation? When Jeff had said, you know, we're going to open up a taqueria, I said, I looked at him. I said, what are you, crazy? I said, I'm a kid from Queens. What do I know about <laughs> Mexican tacos, you know? And he's like, don't worry about it. We'll, 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 we'll check it out. You know, for me, it's just about, you know, engrossing in the culture, touching the ingredients in the markets, um, and eating it there, you know, eating the real deal and trying to get a sense of, you know, the layers of food, flavors and, you know, just experiencing it, you know, and that's what that mole class was really about was, you know, it was about, you know, start to finish, no taking any shortcuts, yeah. you know, and not using any modern ingredients or uh, equipment to do it, you know, so, Everything you know. was hand ground? Yeah, yeah, with the mocajete, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and you know, the Mexican chocolate is not like the abuelita that we use here that it's already, you know, yeah. has cinnamon in it and things like that, um, you know, you use regular chocolate and then you're adding everything to it you know our moles over at coche comodoro you know some of them have 26 ingredients yeah you know take five six hours start to finish and it's like a risotto it's one of those things that you can't just start it and walk away and do something else it takes somebody's full attention to do it now what other um I guess techniques or, or finds, the things that impressed you when you were in Mexico that you were able to take back. For me, with everything that we do, it's 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 about the ingredients, you know, and it's really. I mean, listen, even when I 
when I go on vacation. If I go to Nicaragua or somewhere else, you know, it's about going to the markets and seeing that the ingredients that they're using, you know, and you could see the difference that some of the stuff that we get here, yeah. you know, so it's actually when you get back here and you, you figure out what you want to do, it's really taking that next step to source those ingredients one step further, you know, and making sure they're authentic and they're super fresh and, you know, whatever it is. Now, are you connecting with um, chefs while you're there or are you? On the last two trips, it was it was mostly about just touching base with people that are there and introducing myself to chefs at restaurants that we really enjoyed eating. It's not about staging for me, um, which, you know, just never really had the opportunity to do that. Yeah. You know, um, it was just about, you know, waking up and going, you know, going to but the market. You don't work in a restaurant for now, <laughs> <laughs> Not when I'm on vacation. Yeah. <laughs> it's something about that. It's just not that uh, exciting. You to be on vacation to work in your kitchen for free. Yeah. You I know, don't understand that. Even, even when, we, um, when we were deciding to do Townline Barbecue, you know, we did, myself and Mark, we did a 1,200-mile, 1,800-mile trip across Texas eating barbecue three to six times a day. Wow. That's um, a lot of meat. You know, and that, yeah, it was. <laughs> it was actually, you know, you know, everybody jokes, they're like, oh, your, jo- your, your, your job is so tough, you know, you're going on a food tour. You know, it's actually a lot harder than you it think is. to it's... sit and eat the same, <laughs> I mean, especially barbecue. Yeah. That was brutal. We hit, when we hit Austin on that trip, which we were, I think we were like our third day in, and, you know, we're a bunch of rookies too, you know, because we get so excited. So we're ordering everything on the menu and it just comes out and it's sitting there. Big slabs on yeah, trays. Massive. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you can't throw food away, so you end up eating it all. Yeah. You know, so by the time we hit Austin, we had eaten three barbecue places before lunchtime. And Mark says, you know, what do you want to do after lunch? I'm like, I cannot even think about any more barbecue. He goes, I said, I just got to go. To the hotel, I got to get the smell of barbecue off yeah. me because I reek. I need to take a nap and we'll figure it out. So about three hours later, he calls my, calls my room. He says, what do you want to do? I says, I want sushi <laughs> and I do not want to see another piece of meat for the rest of the night. He's like, we're in Texas. Where are we going to find? I said, don't worry. I'll find sushi. We're in yeah. Austin. This is a, it's a great city. And we went out for sushi that <laughs> night. <laughs> but, you know, even there, like I was about to say, you know, it's about getting into the back introducing ourselves to the pit masters and seeing some of the different techniques they do, whether it's wrapping the meat, um, whether they're offset smokers, they're cinder block mm-hmm. smokers, you know, and the different styles of service, how they were actually service, servicing people, you know, it was important to us to actually learn that because La Fondita and Townline are quick serve. Yeah. You know, it's so, you know, we're used to having waiters and it's like, okay, how do we adapt to that type of service? Well, it's funny because you can go and get an amazing meal at places like that and it's essentially cafeteria service. You're going oh, yeah. serving yourself, getting a beer yeah. and a tray and then... And the menu's super small. Yeah. You One know? thing I always wondered, uh, down in Texas, they make it when it's gone. It's gone. <laughs> How come you didn't bring that back? Uh, we did, actually. Oh, you did? <laughs> <laughs> there was quite a few things we brought back with us, and we started and just had to adapt because New Yorkers just, they weren't going for it. Well, well I think it's important to say, well, too, that barbecue's like super trendy and huge now, but oh, now back it is, then yeah. it wasn't. Yeah. So you were really yeah, we're, we're, were one we're, of the first ones. It was it's 12 years now yeah. we're open at Townline, I believe it is. But you were also doing your R&D back when you had your Italian We were. Uh, Deli yeah, for concept. two years before that, I we, we had the concept in our in our head, and I sourced out this small J and R smoker that holds about two hundred fifty pounds of meat, and I put it behind the Villa Italian Specials, which we owned at the time, and I had it covered with a tarp, and every once in a while I would uncover it, 
and I throw a bunch of different ribs in and I do blind tastings with friends. They'd all come over, sauces, sides, um, different rubs. But when we had started Town Line Barbecue, it was all about dry rub. We were making our own, you know, um, Texas link. We were doing kibasi. We were doing uh, beef, beef ribs, beef back ribs, not short ribs, which are the, the long bones with not a lot of meat on them, yeah. which is very typical in, in um, Texas. Um, we did throw in pork ribs, pulled pork, um, and chicken because we wanted to have a good variety of Carolina people represented. Yeah. Yeah, More Kansas city. You know, we were more Texas and Kansas city style. Um, what made you choose those styles? Um, well, honestly for me, it was really what I learned and what I knew. I didn't know anything about, you know, Carolina, Carolina barbecue. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you know, we really liked that style, but after like a year of doing this, people didn't understand the fact that there was no barbecue sauce on our ribs. They didn't understand why they weren't falling off the bone. Yep. You know? That's a big one. People always yeah. get confused that it's not falling off the bone, but really it should just be perfectly tender. It should tender. be perfectly tender. It should have good bites. It should just when you when you bite the bite the meat off the bone, it should just pull away. It yeah. shouldn't just fall off. So we adapted to the New York style, to what our customers were saying. I mean, we got to a point we had over 13 vegetable items on our menu too, which you would never see in wow, Texas. Yeah. Right. You know, vegetable burger, salad, shrimp, you know. Uh, your beets. Our, your, your beets. I've never seen all yep. that on the road. Our collard, and they're incredible. Our collard greens, we took yeah. the bacon out because we had so many vegetarians. You know, yeah. I mean, it was just... We, we had to adapt, and we did. You know, it's part of being in business. And localizing it. Yeah. You can't serve meat in New York without sauce. People have a meltdown, I feel like, in any form. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, we, you know, we adapted. You know, we, we, we do mop, but they're not, they're not slothy, yeah. full of sauce and, you know, falling off the bones. So we found a happy medium. Now, I know you haven't taken road trips for one of your probably oldest concepts and longest-running restaurants, uh, Nick, Nick and Tony's. And Tony's. Um, what is it that makes it always fresh there? Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm somebody that loves change, you know, um, almost to a fault, I think, you know, uh, you know, Mark and Christy will, and whoever will, will, will see things on the menus that they like. And I'm just like, no, let's switch keep, it out. It'll moving. come back. Yeah. Let's keep it moving. You know, and where we're located on the East End, the fish, the produce, you know, actually even the local source meats, you know, the access to, to really good quality meats and game, game birds, you know. So we have really good relationship with my purveyors, farmers, fishermen, um, you know, so they're always, you know, throwing new products at me. I'm like, okay, let's change, you know, let's change it up. Let's change it up. And like I said, surrounding myself with really good people, younger people yeah. that are just, you know, hungry and looking to do more and more, you know. Has having all the different concepts with your love of change helped, do you think, to kind of keep your career fresh and going? Oh, without a doubt. I don't know if I would have survived in this business as a chef in a single in a just single restaurant. restaurant. Yeah, yeah, I could just, I know my type of personality. It's just, got I got to keep keep moving and keep going and, you know, doing new things and trying new things. So, yeah. At your Italian concept, um, as you said, you like changing things up, but there's a couple constants that have never come off the menu. Yeah. And one is probably an ever popular dish around the country is in pasta. Uh, your penne, what makes it so special? 
You know, it was a recipe that Jeff and Tony, um, they were in a small town, Vecchia Bethola, and they came across it and just absolutely loved it. Um, fell in love with the restaurant, introduced themselves to the owners, and they gave them the, res- the recipe and they brought it back. And it's just been one of those items that have been on the menu. I've been fortunate enough to go and visit that, that restaurant. Um, it's going back 21 years now. Um, I need to take another trip to Italy and, you know, kind of yeah. refresh my uh, time, time <laughs> Do a little roots. more research. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been – actually, no, it has been 21 years, yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, that has been on the menu forever. We had a, we, we had a chicken dish that was on it for the longest time. Um, and then when I took over in 96, I decided – that I, I just tweaked it a little. It was a half roast chicken. I mm-hmm. took it off the bone and I was able to switch that. The Caesar salad has been a constant. Caesar salad's been on The zucchini too. chips have been a constant. constant, And so is the biscotti mm-hmm. um, and Vincento at the end of the meal. Well, I'm going to boomerang back to that pasta. I'm not letting him leave. Yeah. Okay. What makes it so <laughs> You know, it's, it's, it's a very long process. Um, actually, it's published on Ida Garter, so you could actually get it. Is the from olive her. oil? Is well, it we, no, tomatoes? what we do is, is the, you know, you, we sauce really good t- Italian tomatoes, Tio tomatoes. Number one. We yeah. strain them, we chop them. So you're just left with just the pulp. We saute down, saute down a bunch of onions and garlic, lots of crushed red pepper, deglaze that with uh, a, a vodka. And we reduce that down, and then we take that mixture of tons of oregano. It's like a syrup. At and then we point. take yeah, yeah, we take that that mixture and just mix it in with the tomato pulp. Put it in a, a hotel pan, cover it with foil, and we bake it for like five hours. Yeah, that's amazing. You know, nice and low and slow. And then we take it and we puree the whole mixture. And then on the pickup, we just add a little bit of cream mm-hmm. and uh, some fresh oregano. Toss it with some fresh pasta, uh, some fresh um, uh, pasta, and you know. Well, yeah, recipes like that are great too. It's like you super said, the pickup simple. Pickup is easy. Yeah, it's the yeah. Prep work. That's Absolutely. Hard. Absolutely. You know, batching out certain items, and it's just always so consistent. Yeah. You know, we have our one person. She makes it every week. You know, and she's been with me for the last ten years. You know, wow. so she's a constant. She just does it exactly the same all the time. Well, Joe, well, thank you for being here today. It's always a pleasure seeing you. That was executive chef for all of Honest Man Restaurants, Nick and Tony's Coach Commodore. Rowdy Hall, La Fandita, Honest Catering, and Townline Barbecue. A chef's appetite for learning is never fulfilled. We teach each other by example, sometimes together, mostly apart because of our hectic days. A dear mentor once told me many years ago, chefs are ladies and gentlemen, and when we come together, we are all cooks, creating and learning from each other. For more food, culture, and lifestyle tips, guest interviews, and our podcast, visit WLIW.org radio and ChefGeorgeHirsch.com. And join our conversation on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WLIWFM and at George Hirsch. You know, we talk about uh, what to eat, but also hydration and what you drink is important. And, you know, both of us do drink an insane amount of water. Water, yeah. You know, we're always, always hydrated most of the time. But I I absolutely love you talk about uh, a calming beverage Mm -hmm. and rejuvenating beverage. Green tea. Your green tea. Yeah, we make it all the time when we do events. So what I'll do is I'll make a big batch of green tea, as you know. If it's wintertime, we can keep it hot or reheat it as we want. Summertime, it's great chilled. I just made some at my house the other day. Uh, I take raw ginger and I chop it up as much as you want, uh, put it in a pot, 
lemon. So maybe if you're making, let's say, uh, two quarts, I would do one nice piece of ginger peeled and chopped, one whole lemon juice, a good squeeze of a really natural local honey if you can get it. Local honey is better for you than getting honey from somewhere else just because of I, I don't know if it's true. It's the pollen. It's the pollen. The, no, it right? is. It, it is, is actually true. Yeah. It actually will as far cut as down allergies on go. allergy attacks. Yeah. Yes. So get a good local honey. So you have ginger, lemon, good local honey, and then I'll put maybe four or five bags of good organic green tea in there. You don't want it to come into a rolling boil. You almost want it to simmer because it can come out a little bit bitter and harsh if you boil it too hard. Uh, so let it simmer for about, I don't know. Five minutes. Yeah, and then steep for about five, ten minutes. Yeah, strain it, and yeah. that's it. You're done. It's almost like making a simple syrup. I mean, the honey dissolves in it, so you don't get any stuck honey on the bottom if you're having it cold. And any mixture of fresh herbs. You can use mint, lavender. A lot of times you bring mint from your own garden. Yeah, from my own too. garden and that. It's just it's just, it's just, just fabulous. And the honey it just, just brings it over the top, and it's also very, very high in tryptophan. Yeah. And uh, green tea is super high in antioxidants. And low antioxidant levels have a very strong correlation to high anxiety levels. So you want to eat foods that are rich in antioxidants. And as far as drinks go, green tea is one of the best antioxidant drinks you can drink. You know, in, in starting to plan your day, plan your week, you know, it's always the foundation. And I've always been a big breakfast person mm -hmm. because, again, of my schedule and not knowing, you know, when the next meal is and I might be having to snack or, or, or take something. Um, but it's breakfast. And in breakfast, there's so many fabulous choices and options outside of just scrambled eggs and bacon. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's, you know, they say the good old American breakfast. But again, there's a great time of day to incorporate, you know, whole grains, oatmeal, nuts, fruits, cinnamon. Yeah. Ground cinnamon is is just cinnamon just does amazing food. things for keeping hormone levels stable too. Like I'll put cinnamon in protein shakes in the morning. Um, I mean, spices do incredible things, uh, especially if you're buying good organic fresh spices. Uh, you can tell the difference between a really quality spice and you know maybe not so good one when you're picking them up at the store. Just by the second you open that lid, you get hit in the face with this perfume. And cinnamon is one of my favorites. Well, I think spices definitely take it to a whole new level, and uh, I think this is a, a great way you know, to practice some of these to just chill out. According to a study from the John Hopkins Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, timing may influence appetite and gut hormone responses to meal and stress challenges. The study showed that the afternoon-evening may be a high-risk period for overeating, particularly when paired with stress exposure and for those who are apt to binge eating. This means that your commute home or evening meal may be a time that you have a greater likelihood to eat more than you should. To help curb this increased chance, pay attention to snacking habits after a long day of work to help prevent weight gain, to preparing snacks in advance to control portion size, or a food journal to track what you eat and how much you do. It's always a good idea to consult your doctor or a dietitian when you change your diet. Glad to have you join us on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio. I'm George Hirsch. And I'm Alex Getzfried. Our producer is Delaney Hafner, along with production support from Kyle Lynch. Supervising producer is Allie Gimble. George Hirsch and Diane Michelli are co-executive producers. 
George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio is a co-production of Hirsch Media and Audio Engagement Group, LLC. Thanks so much for tuning in to George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio, the show that celebrates how our lives are connected through food and culture. For more episodes and our podcast, visit wiw.org radio and chefgeorgehirsch.com and your favorite streaming and podcast platforms. We'll see you next week right here on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio.